The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. If this were to be your last day on earth, what would your last words be? What would you want to say to your loved ones or to your children, if you have children, or your grandchildren? Well, I would certainly want to encourage and exhort them not to get caught up in the cares of this world, but to be ambitious for the things that really matter, to be concerned about eternal things in God's kingdom. I'd want to tell my loved ones the most important things I wanted them to remember. And that's exactly what Jesus did before he ascended to heaven after his resurrection. And today we're going to look at Jesus' last words in light of the imminency of his second coming. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Jesus' last words to his disciples were called the Great Commission. And the research group Barna that studies cultural and religious trends has come up with a surprising survey. Regular churchgoers were asked if they've ever heard of the Great Commission. And unfortunately, 51% said they'd never heard of it. A quarter of them, 25%, said they'd heard of the Great Commission, but they couldn't exactly recall its exact meaning. 6% said they just weren't sure at all, and only 17% of churchgoers said, yes, I know what the Great Commission means. Can you imagine only 17% in that poll actually claim to know the answer? But the vast majority, 83%, didn't have a clue. The numbers were slightly better for Christians who identified themselves as evangelicals. But the thought came to me that of the 17% who claimed to know the answer, if they were actually asked to give a definition of the Great Commission, would they in fact be able to give an accurate answer even though they claimed to know it? So at this point, we'd better ask, what is the Great Commission? After all, it's mentioned in all four of the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. So it's mentioned five times in the New Testament. The Great Commission comprises the final instructions, as it were, the last will and testament of Jesus just before he ascended into heaven, where he's presently being retained until the last days and until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought into the kingdom of God. And then only when the last Gentile is saved, the gospel baton will be handed back to the Jewish people and Jesus will return to rule planet Earth for a thousand years. As I said, the Great Commission is recorded in all the Gospels and in the book of Acts, but each time with a different emphasis. But perhaps the best known version is found in Matthew chapter 28, so I'll read that one. Then Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and upon earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm going to be with you always, even to the very end of the age. So in giving us this seemingly formidable task of making disciples in all nations, Jesus did say that we wouldn't be alone. He would be with us, enabling us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask the pastors, are you faithfully teaching your congregations about this great commission? And parents, are you teaching your children about the mandate of the Great Commission? According to the survey that I mentioned earlier, the Great Commission hasn't been taught often enough. How can we obey a command that we don't even know? By the way, I looked up the definition of the word commission, and it means the act of committing or entrusting a person or a group with supervisory power or authority. It can also mean a document granting such authority. And so this is our authoritative document, the word. And the word commission can also mean a group of persons authoritatively charged with particular functions, such as, for example, a parks commission or a commission charged with environmental concerns. But Jesus' commission is a charge to all his disciples in all generations to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Theologians call it the Great Commission because it's the greatest and most noble task upon earth. The way the Great Commission is described in Acts 1.8 is, in fact, the mandate of our exploits ministry. In that verse, Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended, But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and also among the Samaritans. And he said, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, I'm very impressed with a young political commentator and editor. He's an Orthodox Jew who's not a believer in Jesus, but he knows that he must do something in his lifetime to make the world a better and safer place for his children to live in. It's the Jewish concept of tikkum ha'olam, repairer of the world. Even though he runs a conservative news agency, I heard him say in a public debate that his primary purpose in life is family, to raise his children responsibly and to take care of his parents. We Christians ought also to have the same godly goals, to nurture children and to requite our parents. But we're also called by the Lord to spread the good news of the gospel far and wide through every means possible. And if it seems a daunting task, Jesus reminds us that he's the one who's going to build his church. And so he'll enable us with power from on high to do the task of spreading the gospel, to be his hands and feet. And it's going to require on our part a willingness, a determination, and a holy boldness. A.B. Simpson, founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, a church denomination that emphasizes global evangelism, A.B. Simpson said that 
One of the special marks of apostolic church times was the spirit of boldness, what he called a holy audacity. I like that. Believers attempted great things for God and expected great things from God. So let's recover that hallmark of the early church, holy audacity. The end-time revival that believers claim to crave means a commitment to the Great Commission and a willingness to move in holy boldness. In his first coming, Jesus was called by God to do the work of atonement, to offer up his life as a ransom for sinners. It wasn't his purpose at his first coming to fulfill a dominion mandate. It wasn't his task to lead an insurrection against the Roman occupiers, as other false messiahs did. And his apostles also didn't advocate insurrection. Yet the scriptures testify that they turned the world upside down with their preaching of the life-transforming gospel. Even today, we mustn't think that our primary task is to conquer this world in its present state. No, our primary task is simply to fulfill the Great Commission to save as many souls as possible and make disciples by sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel and living holy lives is how the early church actually changed the world. And the gospel that Jesus saves, heals, and delivers is still the greatest means for real change. So from this, we can see that knowledge and understanding of the Great Commission is not being passed on to the younger generations as it was in times past. And this gap needs to be corrected urgently. We want to encourage you to do your part in making the final words of the Messiah clearly known and obeyed. Furthermore, I read an article this week from America with the disturbing headline, Mass exodus from the church. The percentage of young adults with no religious affiliation has nearly quadrupled since 1986. With each passing year, the percentage of Americans that claim no religious affiliation has grown, and this trend is especially pronounced among our young people. Today, nearly four in 10 young adults between the ages of 18 to 29, are religiously unaffiliated. That's three times the unaffiliated rate among seniors aged 65 and older. For example, in 1986, only 10% of young adults claimed no religious affiliation. But now, 39% claim no religious affiliation. And with each passing year, the percentage of Americans that claim no religious affiliation is growing. And this trend is especially pronounced among our young people. If trends continue to steadily move in this direction, this will have enormous implications for the future of our society. Already, we're seeing a tremendous breakdown in decorum and civility due to people having no guiding principles of behavior. We have to remember that the United States was founded by people who were extremely committed to their faith. But now Western nations are rapidly becoming countries where many people are choosing no religion at all. 
So we're living at a time when there's a mass exodus from churches. And while it's true that some minority faiths are growing, the reality of the matter is that most of the people that are leaving churches are remaining unchurched. So what's happened to the holy audacity that's missing in so many of our churches? What's happened to the holy anxiety that we must redeem the time for God? Instead, many of us seem to be caught up in the cares of this world and the excitement and intrigue of rediscovering our Hebrew roots. We have to stay in balance and remember the urgency of the Great Commission rather than engaging in theological hair-splitting. My husband and I will never forget a TV interview with one of our mentors, evangelist Reinhard Bonke, when he was being interviewed on a popular Christian talk show. The host turned to Reinhardt and asked him to answer a tough theological question about some issue that was no doubt fascinating, but wasn't necessarily able to help a person obtain a saving knowledge of the Lord. Well, Reinhardt's answer was brilliant. He said, when the last soul who could possibly be saved is saved, then and only then can we have the luxury to sit around and split theological hairs. So this brings me to the topic of some of your questions. This week, Mark wrote to me to say that recently he had received the revelation about Shabbat. He began desiring to participate in Shabbat every week. So he approached his boss and asked for Saturdays off along with Sundays. He managed to convince them to honor his new schedule. However, he wrote me that as he began to study Shabbat more, he heard that the Sabbath actually starts on Friday evening instead of Saturday morning. So he asked for more understanding. Mark wrote that he'd be a bit bummed out if Shabbat actually starts while he's still working on Friday nights. My question, he said, is what time does Shabbat really start every week and how did Jesus and the apostles celebrate Shabbat? Well, Mark, first of all, I want to say that God is always way ahead of us. Non-Jews might think the Sabbath begins on Saturday morning, but in fact, in the Hebrew way of calculating things, a day begins at sundown. So Friday evening is when the Sabbath begins. That's why the Friday evening meal to welcome the Sabbath is so important in Judaism. My advice to you is not to get rigid concerning these matters. If you can get Friday night off, well and good. For example, I do enjoy winding down on Friday evenings and welcoming a Sabbath evening, relaxing meal. We try to relax on Saturdays, but we're not legalistic about travel and activities. It was the custom of Jesus, of course, always to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. But I have no problem with Sunday worship because Sunday is called the Lord's Day now by virtue of the Lord's resurrection on the first day of the week. So Sunday is when the apostles got together to break bread after resting on the Sabbath. What we always must keep in mind is that our gospel liberty sets us free in Messiah 
from legalistic Sabbath keeping. We can enjoy the Sabbath and we can also enjoy the Lord's day. If you study the issues debated by the apostles at the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts chapter 15, the only prohibitions put upon former Gentile believers concerned four points. The apostles advised to abstain from food polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and to abstain from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. I hope this helps, Mark. Take it easy and enjoy the Lord. And friends, I do recognize that the Sabbath is the Sabbath. It's the seventh day in the Bible. Nothing changes that. Sunday shouldn't be called the Sabbath. Sunday is called the Lord's Day because, as I said, Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. I can rest on Saturday and worship the Lord on a Sunday or on any day of the week. But most of all, please, please remember this verse. In Colossians 2.16, the Apostle Paul very wisely wrote this sensible advice. He said, don't allow anyone to judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a Sabbath day. Now then, as the people of the book, Jews and Christians, grow closer to one another, and as we're rediscovering our Hebrew roots, the question comes up all the time. Must evangelical Christians keep the law? Jesus himself gave us the highest standard when he said, Be ye perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And he also said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the most religious people of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to make the kingdom of God. But Jesus also castigated the religious leaders for substituting the traditions of men for the commandments of God. Even his Sermon on the Mount is impossible to keep in our own strength. One theologian put it like this, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is the same as the purpose of the sermon at Mount Sinai where the law was given. It's to show that you can't make it on your own or by your own righteousness. You need a savior. You have to be born again. It's impossible for an unregenerate person to keep God's law. We've got to have a new nature. Let me explain it this way. If a zookeeper put a lion in a cage with a lamb, what do you think will happen? Of course, the lion will devour the lamb. We can't demand millennial truth from a lion. He just won't cooperate. He needs a new nature. And that's why Jesus said a person can't enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Our spirits have to be regenerated. And that's the good news of the gospel. When we receive the Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. He gives us a new heart. And he writes the law of God on our hearts. As we draw nearer to the time of the second coming of Jesus, it seems that the church should have a better understanding of the Hebraic roots and why the Jewish state has reappeared in time and history and that God is preparing the nation of Israel for the return of Jesus. But instead of a better understanding of the times, unfortunately, we see an increase of unchurched people 
and in the churches the menace of replacement theology, that troublesome era which says that God is finished with the Jewish people and now he's only working exclusively with the church. I have so many comments and questions about replacement theology and it foolishly boasts that God no longer has a special role for Israel as a nation, that the church has replaced Israel as God's covenant people. But that theological error is the sin of pride. And the Apostle Paul specifically warns us against boasting against Israel in Romans chapter 11. Replacement theology is unacceptable because it makes God out to be a liar and a covenant breaker. To accuse the Almighty of breaking covenant with his ancient people cast doubt upon his faithfulness. Yet the scriptures declare, Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. God promised in the Bible that in the last days he would return the Jewish people to the land of Israel and that he, God, would move heaven and earth to accomplish it. So Israel's miraculous rebirth as a nation in 1948 was the literal fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. It's a major sign that God is still the God of Israel and that he's certainly not finished with the Jewish state. Israel is still very much in God's heart and plans and to believe otherwise flies in the face of fulfilled prophecy and shows a hardness of heart among many so-called believers that's frankly shocking. Along these lines, many questions and comments posted at the end of my broadcasts concern the ongoing tragic confusion over who is Israel. So much confusion could be cleared up if people would follow the rule and simple advice of the former Liverpool Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle. It's so sensible. Bishop Ryle said that in reading the Psalms and the prophets, settle in your mind that Israel means Israel, Zion means Zion, Jerusalem means Jerusalem. And whatever edification you want to take for yourself or derive from applying to your own soul or the church, the words which God addresses specifically to his ancient people, never lose sight of the primary sense of the text. Amen. That's such good advice. All uses of the word Israel in the New Testament refer to Israel and not to the church. The apostles didn't use Israel as a synonym for the church. The terms we've heard incessantly, the new Israel or spiritual Israel, are never mentioned in the Bible. While Israel may be used as a type of the church, and we can certainly learn from the patriarchs' experiences in the Hebrew scriptures, nevertheless, the church is never referred to as Israel. In fact, the distinctions are very clear in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.32 is one of those verses that brings a lot of clarity. Paul wrote about three different groups. In that verse, he said, give no offense either, first of all, he mentioned to the Jews, give no offense to the Jews. Secondly, he said, give no offense to the Greeks, meaning the Gentiles. And thirdly, give no offense to the church of God. So here Paul distinguishes three groups of people. The church is 
something different from Israel are the Gentiles. The church is made up of both Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Israel is a nation whose membership is defined by natural descent, whereas membership in the church is defined by a person's faith in the Messiah, whether he or she happens to be from a Jewish background or from out of the nations. In the New Testament, the church is called a new man, a new creation in Messiah. So please understand that the church is something relatively new. It's existed for only about 2,000 years, whereas Israel has existed for much longer. Israel came into existence at the time of the Exodus. But the church was newly born on the day of Pentecost around the year A.D. 33. So the church is a new entity. It's a new body of believers. It's not a continuation of Israel. Well, another question that I frequently receive is why Christians feel the need to support Jewish causes when there are so many urgent needs among Christian believers. I don't believe this question stems so much from blatant anti-Semitism as it stems from a lack of faith and a lack of knowledge concerning God's eternal purposes and his limitless resources. When it comes to ministry finances, it's very important that the Lord never hears us moaning and complaining as to why other people receive or why other people give towards certain projects. If we complain, we could be coveting finances and showing unbelief. Giving should always be spirit-led anyway, and we have to requite the elders in the faith because the Jews gave us everything. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to return our material possessions to them because they gave us so many spiritual things. They gave us the New Testament, they gave us the Messiah, and so forth. Take, for example, donating vehicles, as our ministry has done to Israel's emergency services. Do we not owe a debt of gratitude to these Jewish patriarchs in the faith? Do we not need to be guardians of them when there's so much anti-Semitism in the world? I've trained myself long ago to believe that God is big enough to take care of every ministry who waits upon God for finances. I've trained myself to believe that God is bigger than all the needs of all the believers combined around the world. I've had to train myself incessantly never to look to human beings for help. While it's quite legitimate biblically from time to time to let our needs be made known, sometimes Paul did, sometimes he didn't, Nevertheless, ultimately, the Holy Spirit wants us to look to God alone as our source. And having God as our source is very liberating. Then we're not tempted to covet other people's resources. Well, I want you to feel free to contact me on the social media with your questions and comments. Or you can also contact me through our website at exploits.tv. And at our website, you have the opportunity to sign up to receive our weekly updates and our free color magazine exploits based upon Daniel 11.32, which proclaims that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and we're going to carry out exploits. That holy audacity I was speaking about. And remember, the most important thing I've said today is that Jesus is returning soon. All the signs declare it. So what should we be doing in the meantime? We should be sharing the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission. 
A reminder also that our new Jerusalem Channel app enables you to watch all of our videos at any time, to order from our bookshop, and to read the entire Bible on our app. You can download the app to your mobile phone or a tablet free of charge. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha.